is this is this is extraordinary for a presbytery. Our presbytery is, uh, shall we say, not like this, and uh, and so I hope you appreciate the. Uh, in some ways, I feel like you should come to my presbytery and teach us on unity. Um, this is beautiful. I almost want to just come up here and plant a church in your presbytery just to get around it. But <laughs> only, the, the only problem is I'd have to live here. Um, I, yeah, I was, I'm not showered or shaved because I got up and, and I was like, y'all don't even have hot water in this state? Like, is, is literally everything cold here? So I'm just going to shave when I get back to Dan's house and sorry, you get me un, you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm unclean. All right, so last night we started with just kind of a grand vision of church unity and the Lord's prayer for us that we would be one. I see as one with the Father. Uh, what I want to do with our two talks today is flesh that out in practical ways. Um, and I'm, both of my talks uh, today are entitled Church Unity, except um, the first one is, if you want to entitle it, it'd be Little C Church Unity. The second one will be Big C Church Unity. So we're going to start by talking about unity within your local congregation here, and then unity among the broader um, Catholicity, ecumenical, uh, the big C church that we'll get to this afternoon. Let me ground us here in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner, this is in Ephesians 2, this is, um, this is Ephesians uh, 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. So like Dan said last night, I went to seminary uh, with him in St. Louis, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and so my drive... Uh, my drive home uh, was across, uh, to, when I would go home in Lexington, Kentucky, was across uh, southern Indiana and Illinois and into Kentucky. And, um, and one uh, year I was driving home for Christmas break and got caught in a huge snowstorm. Now, I know when you hear a Kentucky guy say huge snowstorm, you roll your eyes, but this was a legit one, all right? This is, this is one that would shut down your... Uh, societies up here. It was the uh, it was the largest snowstorm that Indiana uh, had ever experienced, and I, like an idiot, never checked the weather. Just got in my car to drive home for Christmas, and um, I I drive into the middle of the snowstorm. It was awful. I could barely get off the exit. I slide into a random Indiana hotel parking lot, and it's just full of holiday travelers stranded. I get the last room they have. And just as they hand me the key, uh, this couple walks in, and they ask for a room and are told, I'm sorry, we just gave the last one away. And with that, the woman just bursts into tears. And the guy says, listen, you don't understand. We just got married. This snowstorm has ruined our honeymoon. You have to have a room for us. So I'm hearing all this transpire, uh, feeling awful for this couple. And so I say, listen, excuse me. I couldn't help but over here, um, 
I just got the last room, and it has two beds. <laughs> You're welcome to the other one. My dear brothers, you may think you know awkward. <laughs> have you ever shared a cheap hotel room with a random couple on their wedding night? Because I have. I mean, what was I supposed to say? I mean, the worst was us trying to fall asleep, you know? What was I supposed to say? Like, good night, don't let the bug bugs bite? And I had to say something to break the tension, so I just said, Merry Christmas. And she just burst out crying. And I told this story to my congregation recently when discussing the uniqueness of the local church. Every other community is formed around commonality, shared interests. That is to say, people like you, thus familiar to you. Um, country clubs, neighborhoods, politics, hobbies, sports teams. I had the honor of touring uh, Lambeau uh, yesterday, two days ago, I guess now, which was an amazing experience. And, and, you know, as an outsider who doesn't really care for, I'm a college football guy, not an NFL guy, but I could appreciate um, your all's craziness in, in all of that. But, um, but it was so obvious that, you know, I wasn't doing it like everyone else on the tour was doing it. Um, they, there was this shared common love and passion for the Packers that they clearly had together. And this is how we do community in our world. Of course, there is still diversity of quirks and personalities, but we share a baseline self-interest together. But then there's your church, intended to be the most intimate and vulnerable community of all, and do you ever look around and think, who are these people? Who are these people? Yes, I know that American Christianity has formed churches around consumeristic interests. And so, you know, our churches probably are filled with people who generally like, are like us. But even still, every church to some degree, by its nature, bears a unique diversity. Because what brings us together is not common interests, but a common gospel. A storm unexpectedly moved into our lives. The wind of the Holy Spirit blew upon our souls. And suddenly we find ourselves in the most intimate of settings with people who are not like us, except that the wind of the Spirit has led them there too. The oneness that we explored last night would be hard enough if the church was just people like us. But we have to do it with the diversity of people assembled together with no rhyme or reason save the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not easy. But... It is our Savior's expectation nonetheless. I thought of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, Paul lived in his ministry among fierce church divisions. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, as many of you know. But then he had this impossible task of enfolding these Gentile converts into Jewish converts and convince these rival factions. If you think the Republican-Democrat divide is why the Jew-Gentile divide makes the GOP-DNC look like best friends to unite together these two groups as one glorious church of Jesus Christ. I cannot overstate how seemingly impossible that was. And so, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know he obsessively is pleading for unity in the church. And our passage is one of the most significant of those pleas because the church in Ephesus was so divided. And I'm going to... I, I just had two simple points from our passage here. We're going to look at... Uh, Unity application and unity motivation. Let's start with the application. Here's the reason why I call it application is because 
of the way verse 1 is structured. I therefore, therefore means that this is his application to what he has been speaking of previously in Ephesians. And what he's been speaking of is nothing less than some of the richest theological discourse in all of Scripture. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 3 um, is perhaps arguably, outside of maybe Romans, the most um, incredible articulation of the gospel we adore. And our passage is that crucial turning point in Ephesians where the truth of the gospel gives way to gospel application. Paul says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk, apply, get to work in a way that is worthy. That word worthy in the Greek means equal or in proportion to. So simply put, what, what my brother, uh, who's also named Robert, Right, Robert? Yeah, yeah, we got that. We're unified in that. Uh, Robert was just talking about orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Um, You you could say uh, creed must be matched by conduct. This is what he's getting at here. Worthy, your walk must be worthy to the gospel that I just articulated in in 1 through 3. If you truly believe it, you you will live it. Now, specifically, what does Paul have in mind here as his application? If you're familiar with the Ephesus context... Uh, The answer might be very surprising. Ephesus was a deeply pagan society with multiple temples that housed worship to pagan gods and goddesses. So perhaps Paul would say, therefore, flee, condemn these idolatrous practices. Sexuality in Ephesus was broken and perverse, even more so than in our culture. Perhaps Paul would begin by saying, therefore, let's talk about sexuality and sexual ethics. Greed and materialism were rampant in in this very affluent culture. Maybe he would call them toward uh, simplicity, generosity. All of these are good and necessary applications, but Paul has an even greater concern for the Ephesians. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul elevates bearing with one another in love as his chief application to his theology. And so we should probably linger here and consider it. The command is to bear with one another. But he qualifies it with three characteristics here, right? Humility, gentleness, and patience. So what I'd like to do is consider both his command and then those three qualifiers. Let's begin with the command itself to bear with one another in love. When you think about it, it's a strange way to tell us to love each other. But I actually appreciate it for its honesty. Bearing with one another implies that love ain't easy. And it ain't. I'm talking like Kentucky guy. Y'all don't use that word, do you? It it is not. (laughs) Paul is acknowledging what we all know is true. I am not easy to love. And guess what? You are not easy to love. And the impetus of bear with one another is not an idealistic one. Instead, it recognizes the simple struggles we all share, and yet we are a community that refuses to let those struggles win. Instead, we will bear with each other. And we dare not misread the call to bear with one another as simply tolerating each other. That's why Paul says, bear with one another in love. Love is not merely toleration. It's easy for for churches to tolerate one another. Pleasant social graces can accomplish that. How are you doing? Good. Great. How are you doing? Good. Great. Who do the Packers play today? Okay, cool. And that's essentially, essentially church unity. But what I want us to see here is that when Paul says bear with one another in love, he has more in mind than pleasantries. And that's where these qualifiers come into play. What does it mean to bear with one another in love? He gives three distinctives. Let me go through each of those. First, Paul says, 
with humility we bear with one another. You know, there's a self-righteous way to bear with others. Look at me. I'm so special. You have so many issues, so many struggles that I can't relate to. Opinions that are clearly misguided, but I want you to know that I'm willing to bear with you. It's just nauseating, right? In this way, bearing with others has an arrogant ethos to it. In contrast, Paul says we bear with each other in humility. Here's what that means. I'm going to bear with you because I recognize you have to bear with me. And that's not lip service. I actually mean that. My love towards others is grounded in a sincere conviction that bearing with me is more difficult than bearing with anyone else. Next, Paul says, with gentleness, we bear with one another. There's a, be- there's a way to bear with others that actually makes it painful for the other. And look no further than your marriage for this. Of course, I'm not going anywhere, sweetheart. Of course, I will bear with you. But in my countenance, in my passive aggressiveness, in my carefully chosen words that sting, I will ensure that it hurts you just as much as it hurts me to bear with you. So bearing with one another has a harshness to it. This is not what Paul has in mind. His call is gentleness. It's not that we can't have differences with one another, but the ethos of the way we enact those differences matters. We are gentle with each other. We embrace the call to bear with others in such a way that those who are burdened to us do not feel that they are burdensome. Finally, Paul says, with patience, we bear with one another. A better translation there would probably be long-suffering. Because the idea is we are called to bear with one another over time in the face of repeated difficulties and disagreements. It is easy to bear with another in response to a single offense. We all do that. The world does that. But what do you do when sanctification comes slowly, as it always does? When struggles persist, when disagreements are continual, Lord, Peter asks, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven? I can handle seven. Oh, Peter, Jesus responds, not seven, but 77. 70 times seven. Friends, what's, what you're signing up for when you join the family God is prodigious, prodigious love. Long-suffering. We are in this for the long haul together. A lifetime of forbearance towards your brothers and sisters. Now, with those qualifiers in mind, let's each assess how we are doing in this area. And speaking to Dan and in witnessing here, it sounds like this presbytery is full of healthy churches, and for this you should be thankful. And I mean that. It seems there is no need to address toxic factions in your midst, and you should not take that for granted. But... Paul's definition of bearing with one another goes far beyond getting along in a spirit of toleration. It is a proactive humility, gentleness, and forbearance. How are you doing there? Assess yourself in all three of those areas. That'd be a great question for your groups after this. Just those three areas. How am I doing with each of those? And let's let's get concrete. Let's get specific. The benefits of a pandemic for a preacher is it allows me to speak to something and Every context that everyone has faced is facing, um, and, and, and doing speaking gigs. Um, the, the hardest part is I don't, I don't know the, the people I'm speaking to, and it's hard to contextualize that. Um, but the past two years are, have been really good to preachers <laughs> because we know what we're all doing, we know what we're all facing, and it's, it's pretty common. So let, let's, let's use that um, as our test case. 
if your context is like mine, then there are, shall we say, opinions on COVID. Notice that. I know it's winding down, but let's use it as a test case of sorts. How about this question? How is your humility, gentleness, and forbearance towards those who have different opinions than you on all things COVID? On whether your pastor should have shut the church down or not, whether he had it um, closed too long or open too long, on whether your pastor should have done the masks or not, um, all things COVID. You don't hate those people who disagree? That's good. What about your humility toward them? What about your gentleness toward them? What about your patience with them? And of course, it doesn't have to be COVID. I'm just using the low-hanging fruit. Perhaps consider those who, for whatever reason, in your church are burdensome to you. That's what bearing with others means, after all. If they are easy for you, you don't have to bear with them. So this is speaking about those who are a burden to bear. The question this passage is asking is not merely are you willing to bear with them, those who are difficult with you, but more so, how are you bearing with them? Is it marked by humility, gentleness, and patience? If you're anything like me, you have some repenting to do. That's okay. Grace abounds. We will bear with each other as we try to get this right. But one thing's for certain, we need some help here. Well, that's where Paul takes us next. We've seen his application. Let's look now at his motivation. The motivation Paul unpacks is that we are to do this for the sake of God's glory and the world's good. Look at the God-glory motivation in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This motivation here is less about others and more about God. It's interesting how he frames it. This is a Spirit of God motivation. We bear with one another because we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the, the same Holy Spirit that is work within me is at work within you. If we are divided, God's Spirit is divided, and cursed be that thought. If you are at enmity with brothers and sisters in Christ, it is as though God's Spirit is at enmity against God's Spirit. Have you ever thought of it that way? That person in your community is hard for you. Do you ever stop to consider they have the Holy Spirit of the living God within them? That will change things, won't it? Because woe be to us who allow personality quirks, opinions, disagreements, even offenses to literally pit the Holy Spirit of God against himself. And so we give ourselves to this inconvenient and at times painful call to bear with one another in love if for no other reason than to ensure God's Holy Spirit is united together in the bond of peace. If for no other reasons, brothers, do this for God. But the motivation goes further. Do it also for the world. Continue on verse 4 through 6. There's one body, one spirit. Just as you are called, one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all through all, and in all. A lot going on there. I won't take the time to fully unpack it, but the emphasis could not be more obvious. Seven times the word one is repeated, and that oneness is connected to the calling we have received. He says, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Why is unity so big to God? Because God is one, and his plan for the world, the word, the word all there, in all, through all, his plan for the world is to reunite everything together again as one as he is one. Returning to Jesus' prayer last night, 
that they may all be one, that they may be brought to complete unity, then, Jesus says, the world will know. Our unity is a witness to this sin-fractured world of our God and his intentions for this world. You see, the greatest fruit of sin is division. It divides friends, families, nations, yes, ultimately divides humanity from God. But the triune God who is perfectly one aims to reunite again what sin has divided. This is what was meant by the angels when they announced our Savior's birth with these words, peace on earth, goodwill among men. Our world is the furthest thing from that. Strife on earth and enmity among men is the world as we know it. But within this alienated world, God has instituted a new world order, your church, which proclaims a world of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But so many of our churches are replicating the world's divisions rather than the Trinity's unity, only reinforcing the fractures of our fall. It must not be. Our world must see in our churches a new world. Indeed, the destiny of our world that will indeed be united as one. We are missing a huge opportunity right now. Do you think our world is happy as we rage against each other? Our world is miserable. Families are divided. Friendships are divided. Everyone is divided and suffering the devastation of that division. Is there any place left in our nation where they can find the healing power of unity? That's what they are longing for, whether they can articulate it or not. Go back to that stranded hotel of holiday travelers. We wake up the next morning, and it's clear we are not getting out of there. There were like three guests in that hotel one of them were the honeymoon couple, blessed be the name of the Lord, who, who had cars or SUVs able to get out. Um, but almost everyone was stuck. And it's three days for Christmas and no end in sight. And we are all just pissed. Here we are stuck in this random hotel with random people. But then I noticed something strange start to take place. The most lovely community began to form. It was really profound forced us together in this hotel. We shared cheap meals from the gas station next door. We played card games. We laughed. We drank a little. The, the most popular guest was the guy who had beer in his car. We drank. We even did the chores. There was only one employee. And nobody else could get there. So we divided up the labor. I, I was on carpet duty. I, I, I vacuumed the hotel. And it just turned into something our world is longing to find. Community community. When churches are divided by the predictable divisions of our culture, when what rages in our world rages in our churches, far from healing the world, we become a communal celebration of the very thing that has ruined our world. Friends, this is not fitting the people of the triune God. We are called to be a counter-protest to our world's division and the audacious hope that our world can and will be reconciled again. And let us never forget the cost of God's reconciliation. Bearing with one another in love with all humility, gentleness, and patience. That sound like anyone to you? Sounds a lot like Jesus to me. If this call to bear with one another in love seems too hard for you, don't bring that complaint to Jesus. 
You think you were easy to love? You're as easy to love as a cross. Make no mistake, Jesus is not asking you to do for others what he was unwilling to do for you. And at the end of the day, this is our highest motivation. Simply do for each other what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. Our Father, make this true of our churches. I pray this for this presbytery and these churches, but Lord, my heart aches for TCPC and our presbytery. Would our world see in us something literally unworldly in our time? A community of those bearing with one another in love. This is why you have died. You have not asked us to love first. You loved first. May we follow you in obedience of your love. In your name we pray. Amen.